I'm Todd McKay uh, with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'm here with our Quebec director, Renaud Brassard. And Renaud just got back from Tampa Bay, Florida, but he was not on vacation. Let me be very clear about that. We were working him down there like a rented mule. Uh, <laughs> and uh, here's the proof. We got proof here. Renault was on Fox News. Here's a clip from Renault talking to Fox in Tampa Bay. For $1,300, this digital billboard will glare a Tropicana field for a week. It's well worth the money to a group of Canadians who are trying to save taxpayers a lot more money by sending a message. If the Rays want to come and play in Montreal, they're more than welcome to do so. We'll give them a warm Canadian welcome. But uh, they cannot treat our wallets like, a, like an open bar. Uh, if they want to have a new stadium, they better pay for it themselves. Dear Rays, Montreal won't pay for your new stadium. Sincerely, taxpayers. When the team's lease is up at Tropicana Field in 2027, the team's been wanting to split the season between somewhere in the Tampa Bay area and Montreal. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation paid for the billboard. They're a nonprofit group fighting for lower taxes and less government waste. We wanted to send a message directly to the owner of Tampa Bay Rays saying that uh, if they're counting on taxpayer support uh, to build their stadium in Montreal, uh, they're not going to get it. And that was not the only clip. Renault was talking to just about everybody with a microphone in Tampa Bay, Florida. Uh, chatted with a bunch of networks, uh, newspapers, all that kind of stuff. And he was standing there in front of the palm trees uh, talking to just about everybody in Montreal, too. I don't know. I haven't counted it all up, but it was just about everybody. So, Renault, thank you for chatting with us, squeezing us in between all of your uh, international media hits everywhere. Uh, but what was that like, man? What was it like talking to every reporter under the sun in, uh, in Tampa? Oh, it was really great. And, and look, yeah, you, you did work me like the red mule, although I will hide those photos of me with a margarita. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was absolutely great. The reason we were there uh, was to send a very clear message to Tampa Bay Rays. Right now, there's a proposal being discussed uh, to have the team be split, uh, spending half the time playing in the Tampa Bay area, half the time playing in Montreal. And somehow the owners got this idea that both places are going to give them a new stadium, courtesy of all of us taxpayers. Uh, so we wanted to send them a clear message. We bought a billboard, put it up right next, right next to the Tropicana Field where the, uh, the Rays are playing, uh, saying, Dear Rays, Montreal won't pay for your new stadium. Sincerely, taxpayers. Uh, and the media response uh, was absolutely great. Uh, we had a lot of hits. Uh, the Tampa Bay Times actually had a uh, put us on page A3 with a very small snippet, even on the front page. Uh, it was major news over there. Uh, and the reporters seemed to be very happy to see there was someone fighting back uh, on this proposal in Montreal as well. It's such a weird proposal. So the Tampa Bay Rays, Major League Baseball team, they're one of the best teams in baseball, uh, but nobody comes to their games. So the crazy idea, crazy slash innovative slash, I don't know, is they're going to play half their games in Tampa Bay, half their games in Montreal, but they want to build a new stadium in both places and they want taxpayers to pay for it. That's the crazy part of this whole situation. It really is. And taxpayers in both places aren't buying it. Uh, you know, the uh, Ray's owner, uh, Stuart Sternberg, said he's, he's willing to put up like 100 million, maybe 150 million to build a stadium. But look, these new facilities, uh, the ones that were built in the last decade cost anywhere between 800 million Canadian and one and a half billion. So it doesn't even come close to covering even half the cost. Uh, that, 
let alone the full cost of the stadium. And somehow he's got this idea that instead of trying to create a bidding war, like a lot of other teams do, he's not creating a bidding war between the cities. He's actually saying, you guys both won. We're going to play in both of your cities and you're going to have the privilege of paying me a new facility. Uh, so, you know, it's, it just doesn't work out. And in Tampa, uh, you know, the, they, they were looking to build a new stadium in Iber City, uh, in the city of Tampa Bay. Uh, the people there rejected it uh, outright. So it seems like uh, Stu Sternberg is not getting a stadium in Tampa, and he sure as hell is not getting one in Montreal. Well, and I find it so funny. So you would have half a team, they play half the games there, which presumably you'd earn roughly half the revenue, yeah. but it's not half a stadium. No, like you, you can't. You can build everything up to the second base and then call it a day. It's, it doesn't work. You still need to have a full-size stadium in both cities. And, and ultimately, like economists have looked at this thing. They've looked at stadium deals. They've looked at all kinds of structure for stadium deals, whether it is taxpayers owning it and the team paying rent or the team owning it and paying some, uh, some loan back or like whatever kind of subsidy deal you want, uh, you want to think of. They've thought about it. They've looked into it. And they say that for a full-time stadium, there's just no economic case for taxpayer subsidies. Like there's 4% of economists that believe there's an economic case. So it's like the experts are really against this thing. And now somehow the guys, uh, the guys at the race, those two Sternberg and Tampa Bay, uh, but also billionaire Stephen Bruntman in Montreal, they're trying to sell us that taxpayers are, get, are not only going to get their money's worth, despite practically every economist saying no, but that we're going to get our money's worth by having half a team and a full stadium to pay for. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'm not great at math, but I don't see that really <laughs> adding up. Uh, I'll be real honest with you. Let's talk about let's talk about the money on this too. Like this isn't like building a new uh, uh, deck on your house. These things mm -hmm. are massively expensive. Some of the recent uh, Major League Baseball stadiums, what kind of price tag are we looking at for those? So the last, there were three major league baseball stadium built uh, in the last decade. Uh, two of them that were around 800 million Canadian. Uh, one of them uh, in Texas, that was actually very, very expensive at 1.5 billion Canadian. So we're not talking like just a little bit of change. Uh, even the stadium proposal that was rejected in Tampa Bay would have been a little bit up, a little bit upwards of 800 million US. So we're talking about a whole bunch of money to build these facilities. And then to do what? To have them be used for 40 games a year? Because, you know, you've got 160 games in a, uh, in a baseball, 162 games in a baseball season. You'd be playing half from one of the city, but then you've got the away games as well. So, so basically, we'd build a whole new stadium for a couple hundred million bucks or 40, 40 events a year. That, that just doesn't make sense. Okay, so we've talked about the price tag here, but we also, and this is the part that always gets left out of the equation, how much can taxpayers afford to pay? What is Quebec's financial situation right now? You guys uh, got a spare 800 million kicking around you could kick into this thing? Well, you know, maybe if we look through the cupboard, we'll just find one of those couple hundred million bucks, right? That, that, that'd be fun. Uh, now, what, can, what taxpayers can afford to pay is a big fat zero. Uh, I mean, and look at it, like federally, our deficit's over 150 billion bucks. Uh, so there's no money, there's really no money there. Uh, provincially, I mean, the government of Quebec was already significantly in debt, about $200 billion in debt. Uh, and add on top of that, the current deficit about $6 billion. Uh, so there's no money there. Uh, and it, even if you look at the city of Montreal, uh, so in Canada, cities are not allowed to run deficits, right? Uh, 
before they table budget 2022, and that's coming in the coming weeks, maybe coming like two months, uh, but not, not much further than that, they need to find a way to plug a $300 million hole in their budget. That's 5% of their budget. So the city doesn't have a cash, province doesn't have the cash, the Fed certainly don't have a cash, and unless they, they're hoping that uh, taxpayers like you and I want to pay an extra tax for a baseball stadium, uh, I can tell you there's, there's not a lot of appetite for that either. Yeah, there's not a lot of appetite for more taxes anywhere, but how's that look in Quebec? What's the tax, uh, tax burden like over there? So, so every year, uh, actually, this is one, one of the reports I love the most every single year. The uh, University of Sherbrooke uh, in Quebec has a chair in public finance research. I know it sounds really dry, but they put out this report every single year that compares uh, the amount of money in the economy that gets taxed uh, in all Canadian provinces, but also in a lot of G20 countries. And uh, Quebec happens to have the highest tax burden in all of North America, one of the highest in the world even. So yeah, there's, there's not only is there no appetite for new taxes, there's a lot of appetite for tax cuts. Okay, so let's go back to Tampa Bay Rays though. We usually don't go down to the States to, to do events. This was very, very unusual. It was an unusual tactic to go to Tampa Bay to deliver this message. What was the point behind that? Why take the message down there? We wanted to make sure that people over there actually got to hear the truth. Uh, one of the things I was told by a lot of radio anchors is that they were surprised because all they've heard from the raise ownership and there's been no pushback whatsoever, is that everyone in Montreal just wants to get this team and we're all willing to open our wallets and to, and to let them dip uh, into our wallets to pay for their stadium. And that's simply not the case. Uh, there's been surveys about this. 60% uh, of Quebecers and 60% of Montrealers too are against subsidizing the stadium. But in Tampa Bay, all they were hearing from the raise ownership is that Montreal is willing to pay. Uh, so by sending that message in Tampa Bay, we made sure that, first of all, the, the team of there knows that, uh, yeah, the, the people in Montreal are not, uh, we're not, we're not willing to let them walk all over us uh, and get our money for our stadium, but also so that the people of Tampa Bay uh, that love their team and want to be able to keep their team understand that uh, this whole Montreal thing is not a done deal. And look, I'd like to see baseball come back to Montreal. Um, and half a team is better than zero teams. That being said, I don't see any legitimate reason why we should ask a single mother of two on a fixed income to have to pay so that a couple of millionaires and billionaires can get a fancy new stadium. Yeah, that, that whole truth aspect, I think, is huge. What I often see is that you know rich owners sit down with high-powered politicians, and they try to nail it all down in the back rooms before anybody knows what's happening. It really sounds like that's what was happening in this case. The Rays were telling folks in Tampa one thing. The reality was a very different thing. You filled them in on that reality, and that can save taxpayers a truckload of money. Oh, absolutely. And even in Montreal, it's roughly the same thing. I mean, they're, they're negotiating with our Ministry of the Economy. This is the same guy that spent 30 million bucks on, uh, on a BLIM project and is looking to put more money in it. And this guy is saying, look... Uh, you, got, you, you don't have all the facts about the project. Let's, let's wait until they give you all the facts about the project before you say anything. Uh, and right now, he's negotiating between closed doors uh, with, uh, Stephen, with billionaire Stephen Bronfman, with all of those wealthy investors, to try to see how he can give them a couple hundred million bucks. Uh, and there's so much secrecy behind the process. We don't even know how much Bronfman is asking for. We don't even know what kind of structure they want. 
what all we know is that he's asking for money and that economists have looked at all these types of stadium subsidy deals and they're adamant that none of them are beneficial for taxpayers. So it's better to oppose it now rather than wait until we have our economy minister say how much he's willing to give, right? All right. Thank you so much, Renault. Thanks for uh, putting this message out in Montreal. Thanks for taking it to Tampa as well. Good work on this. It was my pleasure. We've got our federal director here, Franco Terrazano. Now, Franco just led the way on an important victory. It kind of slid by, but when you look at dollar values on getting something done, I'm glad we don't pay uh, Franco a commission. Let me just tell you <laughs> that right now. We can't give him a slice of that pie because that pie is too big. Here's, here's the issue at hand. I'm actually going to read a quote from Franco's column published in the Financial Post this summer. Quote, COVID-19 subsidies were always supposed to be temporary. It's now time for the feds to set an end date to all of the spending before our fiscal house falls to pieces. We cannot afford a repeat of last fiscal year. And now here's what we've got. Finance Minister Christia Freeland recently announcing. Here's her quote. Our support needs to be more narrow, more targeted, less expensive. We need to look forward to a day now not too far off when we will be able to bring it to an end entirely. So Franco, before we get into all of the numbers, I'm giving you some credit here uh, and you should take some of it, but what role did our uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation supporters play in moving the government on this? Oh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation supporters played a huge role, a huge role. For starters, uh, thousands of our supporters signed the petition to make sure that this temporary COVID-19 spending remained temporary. But even more than just the petition, right when the finance minister, Christia Freeland, right when she was making deliberations on whether or not to extend these costly subsidies, so many of her supporters fired her an email telling her that we have to keep these temporary spending measures temporary. We can't afford to have these costly subsidies become permanent reading. We and, and our economy, it can't afford to keep paying people not to work. So our supporters took action and, and I'm sure it made a huge impact because I just can't believe that the Trudeau government would stop wasting money unless it got a ton of pressure and our supporters supplied the pressure. Yeah, it's not, I would say, uh, love this government, hate it. Uh, you can be on either <laughs> side of it, but I'm pretty sure their default value isn't to say no on any spending. So if they got pushed to uh, slowing things down a little bit, probably uh, it's because they got a little help in going that direction. But let's quantify this problem a little bit. These programs, when we're talking about this CRB, things like that, what kind of dollar amount are we talking about? How much do these so-called temporary programs cost? Oh, hugely, hugely expensive. So in 2020 alone, these COVID-19 spending from the federal government was estimated to be $271 billion. So that's like the federal government sending out $700 million every single day. Now, to put that into even more context, $271 billion, that would make up more than 70% of the federal government's budget in a normal year. All right. So this summer and uh, throughout the last number of months, really, since uh, the first wave of COVID hit, we've been pointing out, listen, temporary programs, we understand them at the beginning, but they got to stay uh, temporary. 
finally is starting to see some movement on the government side. They're starting to recognize the math. We just can't keep throwing money out the door like you've been saying. So they're starting to change. Uh, I wouldn't say they're all the way there yet. Let's just be honest about that. But we're seeing some movement in the right direction. What kind of change are we seeing so far? Well, first, Todd, I think you bring up some good points. I think the way that we should look at this from a taxpayer perspective is that this is a good first step. It's a good first step. We have to we have to acknowledge that the finance minister, she, she herself said that this was always sold to Canadians as being temporary COVID-19 spending is very important to keep it temporary. Now we got to shift it to being more targeted and less expensive. So we have to recognize that. And I think, like I said, it's because of a lot of pressure that the CTF supporters put on this federal government. But here's what's happening. So we had these very broad, very costly subsidies like the CRB, like the wage subsidy for businesses. And essentially what the federal government is doing is ending those broad, costly subsidies and moving towards more targeted, more narrow, less expensive subsidies for the next few months. Yeah, and while that seems like an obvious thing to do, to send help to the places really needed and not all of the places, that wasn't a, that wasn't a done deal. There were a lot of people calling for these programs to become permanent and continue to just fire hose money everywhere. So it is a big deal that we're starting to see that narrow down. But okay, let's talk about some of the issues at play here. Ultimately, one of the things these programs were uh, were designed to do was to pay people not to work, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when we needed people to stay home. We we're paying people not to work. It's always kind of funny. Yeah, you get what you pay for. If you pay people not to work, <laughs> some of them won't work. That's what will happen. And some of them will continue to not work even when we desperately need the economy to be uh, uh, firing up again. So talk a little bit about those unintended consequences beyond the fact that we're trying to keep people home at the beginning of the pandemic to, to uh, keep a handle on it. What kind of unintended consequences did we see in terms of people not working when probably they could have been? Well, it's, it's so clear that this was certainly and still is a tax pair issue, right? When you're talking about $271 billion of spending in just one year, it's obviously a taxpayer issue. But this is also an economic issue. It's also an issue for so many small businesses who have been taking it on the chin for the last year and a half. And one of the key issues is, Todd, as you brought up, well, hey, it doesn't take a PhD in economics to understand that if you pay people not to work, fewer people are going to work. Now, even near the end of this, the CRB was still dishing out about 300 bucks a week. So that's about the same as if you worked a $15 per hour job for about 20 hours a week. That's about the same amount. So it's pretty easy to understand that if, if someone was making that type of money, uh, why they maybe would rather take the tax dollars and run rather than lace up those work boots, right? But it's not just guys like us pontificating on the chalkboards. No, we were hearing legitimate concerns from so many small businesses. Um, even a survey that was put out from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business uh, found that about 43% of small businesses had issues getting Canadians back to work because they would rather take EI or other COVID-19 related benefits. Um, that number goes up even higher if you look at the hospitality industry, where it was nearly two-thirds of those businesses in that hospitality industry that were having a tough time getting Canadians back to work. Yeah, and that's a huge deal. It's funny. I think you just see that uh, in your day-to-day -day life, too. You walk by so many small businesses, especially uh, in the restaurant industry, hospitality, hotels, retail, 
so many of them have signs come on in work for yeah. us we got we got work to do let's go uh and some people who needed to take those programs legitimately needed to i don't want to discount that but but i think a lot of us can look at times in our lives where if we could have stayed home and played xbox instead of going to work uh, we might not have made the right choice on that right so it is important to uh to get people back on their feet get them rolling again that's good for them good for the economy Okay, so we talked a bit about some of the big time costs associated with some of these programs. Now we're seeing some new ones rolling out. Uh, how much money are we going to save? Well, it's it's tough to tell, right? Because we weren't given a huge amount of details when the finance minister made this announcement. Here's what we do know. We know that these more narrow, these more targeted uh, types of subsidies are still going to cost taxpayers about $7 billion until May. So that's still, we're still talking about billions of dollars here, still very expensive programs. Um, now, without having all of the details, it, it's still pretty clear to me that, that this would be less expensive than the massively broad, massively expensive subsidies like the CRB or the wage subsidy. So certainly, as I said before, it's a good step that the federal government is reining in some of that spending. But Todd, you know, as well as anyone that the fight's not over, we got to hold these guys accountable. And we do have to make sure that all COVID-19 spending of, of this amount does need to come to an end. Okay, so really, what we're seeing here is a good direction, but we don't have the details yet. We got to keep putting pressure on the government to get those details right. Because we also got to look at the big picture here. You know, it's one thing to pay for emergency stuff when things are rosy, but it's not a bowl of cherries when we're looking at uh, Canada's overall fiscal situation. How are Canada's finances looking on uh, on the uh, in the big picture? Yeah, not uh, not good. Not good at all. Uh, I can't sugarcoat it for you. I mean, we did see budget 2021 a few months ago, and within just six years, the federal government is nearly doubling, nearly doubling the pre-pandemic debt, right? Every year, we're now spending uh, north of $20 billion federally on interest charges on the debt, not even just the debt, but interest charges, right? That's money that can't go to healthcare, can't go to fixing roads, can't stay in our pockets because it's going to those bond fund managers on Bay Street just to service the government's debt. And, and and, you know, not to be the bearer of even more bad news, but I got some more bad news. Uh, just before the federal election, the, the CTF, we put the spotlight on some parliamentary budget officer data that showed that under the trajectory, the federal government wouldn't balance the budget until 2070. Five decades of deficits, folks. And if that were to happen, Todd, I've been talking about interest costs, but if that were to happen, taxpayers would lose out on more than $3 trillion just in interest charges by 2070. And, and Todd, you know, you've been talking about the big picture. We've been talking about COVID-19 spending a lot here, but we also got to talk about the non-COVID-19 spending because there's a ton of that as well. And in 2018, before the pandemic, the Trudeau government took uh, spending to all time highs, which means that in 2018, the federal government was spending more money than it did during any single year during World War II. Yeah, man, we've <laughs> got to get this rolling. And so this was a huge first step. I think, uh, again, uh, credit to you, Franco, you were pushing on this for months. Uh, you know, that national P or that uh, financial post piece, I think captured it really well. And I think that stuff does have an impact huge impact from our supporters, uh, you know, firing up 
the old email machine and letting your voice be heard, letting government know it's time to dial it back. But of course, every victory is really the start of the next fight. And the next fight is starting to get on top of all of these issues. Thanks for that, Franco. Our BC director is here, Chris Sims. She's been talking about BC's carbon emissions, the carbon tax there, all of that sort of thing. In fact, check out this clip from the Jazz Johal show on CKNW. Simmer was talking all about this. The definition of insanity is often described as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And now, unfortunately, taxpayers are being driven crazy because the cost of living is going up and these carbon taxes are one of the big problems. Now, when the uh, tax was um, initially introduced, I think it was 2008, uh, it was revenue, it was said to be revenue neutral. Uh, I did ask the minister that question. He, uh, you know, wouldn't, I mean, he danced around a little bit. I did pose the same number that I think you were you had mentioned in the five o'clock news. Now, is it in your mind revenue neutral? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, when they first hatched the carbon tax in 2008, they said many things. They said it was going to be revenue neutral. It was going to stop at $30 a ton, that it was going to create a, an abundance of affordable alternative energies that we could use and that it would reduce emissions. Um, today, none of that is true. It's all wrong. Uh, it's well over $30 a ton. Our emissions keep on going up. And it was revenue neutral, unfortunately, in name only. So yes, when it was first started, they had a corresponding income tax cut, but that only lasted for a little while. It didn't take government long to start playing with the budget books and stuffing old tax credits uh, inside of their revenue. And it was not revenue neutral for many years. And it certainly is not revenue neutral now. All right, Simmer. So we've got new emission stats coming out of BC. This is the BC government's own numbers. So let's start with the numbers. How does it look for emissions in BC? Well, it looks pretty ugly. Uh, Our emissions just keep on going up, even though we have the highest carbon tax in all of North America. Uh, They're up 10% since the year 2015. And this current year that they've got on data is the year 2019. Got to point that out. And so it's also gone up in five of the last seven years. Uh, In fact, when you go back all the way to when they first introduced the carbon tax, uh, it hasn't made a dent really in BC emissions. And quite often, emissions just keep on going up. Okay. So emissions in BC are going up. Uh, Not the only thing going up in BC. How much does the carbon tax cost people right now? What's the carbon tax looking like in BC at the moment? Well, right now it is $45 per ton for our BC carbon tax. And in normal people speak, that's 10 cents a liter of gasoline. Okay. So, but for average people, you know, it's funny, you get mad at the gas station when you drive by and you see the price, but you don't, at least I don't always equate that to what's this actually going to cost me. So what does it cost average people? It costs average people a ton of money. So we actually have two carbon taxes here in BC. The first one, like I said, is about 10 cents a liter. And the second one is actually 16 cents a liter. Combine those 26 cents a liter. It costs you almost $20 just in the carbon tax every time you fill up a minivan. Yeah, and I've got a minivan because I've got four kids. Uh, So this, uh, yeah, I feel that pain for sure. Okay, so let's talk about the policy, though. We've talked about some of the costs. We've talked about emissions continuing to go up in BC. Uh, This was supposed to be revenue neutral, though. They would take the money through the carbon tax and eh, don't worry, you'll get it all back. How's that part been working out? 
Yeah, I laughed because it just isn't. Uh, in fact, when they first launched the carbon tax, to be fair, in the year 2008, there was a corresponding income tax cut that happened alongside of the brand new shiny carbon tax. But it didn't take the government long, and this was the BC Liberal government, to start playing with the books. And what I mean by that is, say you take in the carbon tax, say it's a billion dollars a year that the government takes from that. After a couple of years, they just started taking old or pre-existing or completely unrelated tax credits and shoving them into their revenue column in order to make it balance down to zero. Uh, in fact, I asked one of the head honchos in the finance department when I noticed it during one of their budget lockups, I said, what is with this? And he said, oh, this has all just been an accounting exercise. So it wasn't revenue neutral. Uh, really, it was only that name only for many years. And then when the NDP won power in 2017, they looked at the books and they said, eh, we're going to drop that label altogether. So we haven't even had a revenue neutral carbon tax and name only for many years here in BC. Yeah, so that's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. So just to recap a little bit, uh, emissions continue to go up in BC, have been going up relatively consistently. It's not just a blip. The trend line is for uh, emissions to go up. So the purpose of the carbon tax, it's not working to redu reduce emissions. It was supposed to be revenue neutral. In other words, taxpayers are supposed to get their money back. That's definitely not happening. Uh, certainly not at whole. Most of it, the government is keeping. So it's not, it's not going great. I no, think is not. my general takeaway here. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's costing people a lot of money. Okay, so that's where we are. Where are we going from here? It's one thing to get yourself in a mess. It's, it's another thing to continue in a mess. Where's BC going from here? Unfortunately, we're just going off the ski jump when it comes to carbon taxes. And I will also point out uh, that here in BC, the whole rebate thing. <laughs> if you're a two-person working family in BC, if you make more than $59,000 per year, you get nothing back in the rebates. I will point out the average two-person working family in BC, their income is $84,000 per year. So this does not help average hardworking British Columbians. So looking forward in the future, we are tied to the so-called backstop. So when Justin Trudeau, the prime minister announces, hey, everybody, we're going up to $170 a ton. Uh, we're going along with him. Uh, in fact, when we saw the emissions be posted on Monday, the government turned around and held a big press conference and said, hey, our emissions are going up. What should we do? Let's jack up the carbon tax more because that's not what's working at all. Like I said, it's the definition of insanity. And so unfortunately, by the year 2030, we will either meet Justin Trudeau's $170 per ton or beat it. It could be even higher. In normal people talk, that will be about 51 cents per liter of gasoline just in the carbon taxes. You know what this reminds me a little bit of uh, when you get your truck stuck? And you think ah, if I just stomp on the gas a little bit more, I can just I can blow it out. It's going to, you know, we'll pop this thing out. We'll just hammer on that gas. Uh, usually at that point, uh, you got to phone somebody because you dug it into the axles. Just doing more of the same thing is not usually the way to go. And if we're not seeing emissions go down, but we're seeing costs go up, not a great sign here. But I think for the rest of us in the rest of the country, just to finish on a piece of context here that's pretty important. What are gas prices like in BC right now? 
<laughs> oh, they're disgusting. So here in the Fraser Valley, where I live, I'm about an hour and a half outside of downtown Vancouver. It's about a dollar sixty-one right now here in the Fraser Valley. And when you get into the guts of Vancouver, it's close to a buck seventy. Uh, there are some stations that are flirting with that right now. The highest I ever saw it in Vancouver was one seventy-two nine. And keep in mind um, that right now, because of housing costs, um, people commute all the time. Like most normal people can't afford living in Vancouver. They can barely afford living outside of it. So they need their vehicles. So folks are commuting in, in their minivans, they're using pickup trucks for their work. Like there's heavy car culture here and they're paying through the nose. Well, here's, uh, let me finish on a bright note. Uh, the government for a number of years has been trying to bury these stats. They would quietly put up these emissions numbers. They didn't want anybody calling them out that uh, they were charging people a ton of money on the carbon tax and it wasn't actually helping the environment. The only reason it's coming out pretty consistently and very loudly, uh, Chris Sims, you're loud. You check these things and you're loud and you bring it out and that's a good thing. Uh, Listen, we understand there's different people on different sides of the debate on this, but let's at least talk about the numbers and the numbers are not good. So thanks for bringing that up. And now thanks to all of you for listening. I uh, really appreciate you uh, tuning in this week. Big thanks to Jimbo, uh, James Wood, our finance or our uh, investigative reporter who also edits this. Thanks to Jimbo for helping us out on that. For all of you, thank you so much for listening, but please subscribe. Uh, that'll make sure that you'll know when we put new stuff up and uh, we want to keep in touch. Thanks again. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.